It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Harman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. Last week, the Shalom Harbin Institute ran a week-long interfaith symposium online on the topic of truth, difference, and loyalty. We engaged a whole bunch of scholars, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish, on a whole set of questions that unite us and divide us, how we read texts, how we engage with political questions, what's the meaning of our differences, and what is the meaning of our similarities. And as part of that symposium, I spoke with New York Times columnist Ross Douthat on the topic of religion and politics, the American public square. It was a lively conversation. I really enjoyed it. It really made me think. And this week's episode of Identity Crisis is an edited version of that conversation. You can find recordings of many of the sessions from the symposium on our website, shalomhartman.org. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Talia, and thank you, Tali. And I want to thank all my Hartman colleagues for the work that's taken place this week in putting together this symposium where several thousand people have been studying all week on a whole bunch of incredibly interesting interfaith questions. We're talking a lot about difference and the interfaith encounter is inevitably political, which we'll get into tonight, I hope, but it is also kind of a breather from the news to be able to talk about things like faith and theology. So we'll try to do that as well tonight. Ross, it's an honor for us to have you here with us tonight. Long time uh, reader here, so thank you for it's, being it's, here. It's a real privilege to be with you. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's jump in. There are a bunch of things I want to talk with you tonight about, including Joe Biden and Donald Trump, which we'll get to questions of politics and partisanship in America and how religion informs those questions or is defined by them. And a little later on, I want to do some maybe inside baseball theology together. That feels like it would be fun. <laughs> but let's start with kind of a big picture look at American religion and especially religion in the American public square. You've been arguing for a decade, probably longer, but I've been reading for about a decade about not just a decline in American religion, and I think especially Christianity, that's the prism that you study and that you are loyal to, but not just a decline in American religion, but an argument that religion in America is becoming worse. I'll give you a plug for one of your earlier books, Bad Religion, which I spent a bunch of time over this weekend. In some of my work in the Jewish community, I've been arguing something similar, which is that we've been in a period of major transformation for Jews in America due to three major shifts, the shifting nature of American Jewish identity, the shifting nature of American Jewish ideology, the stuff that holds us together, and perhaps most parallel, the decline of American Jewish institutions over the past couple of decades. But late in 2019, you wrote that maybe the narrative of decline of American Christianity is overstated, and you used the phrase, lukewarm Christianity is declining much more dramatically than intense religiosity. So maybe you could help us understand the map of religion and especially Christianity in America right now. What's in decline? What's good? What's bad? And what's changing in front of our eyes as we kind of watch this story of religion in America in which we're also participants? Sure. I mean, that's a nice small question to tackle. I guess 
One way to think about it is you cited me saying that I think religion in America has gotten worse. And the sort of basis for that somewhat provocative claim is basically the argument that American religious history, which is mostly a Christian religious history, has had this kind of fruitful tension between the side of American religion that is sort of frankly and proudly heretical, right? That is sort of a landscape of religious entrepreneurs and startup faiths and intense religious individualism with, you know, 19th century figures like Walt Whitman and Ralph Waldo Emerson as sort of embodiments of that spirit. But then also this incredibly vital and vigorous institutional form and various forms of Christian faith. And this is something that all discussions of American religion have to cite Alexis de Tocqueville. And so it's something that Tocqueville remarked on visiting the United States. He said, basically, you would expect the institutional forms of faith to be weaker in the U.S. than in Europe, where they had the support of the state and had a kind of establishment behind them, sometimes the threat of force behind them. But quite the contrary, in the U.S., the freedom to choose your own religion seemed to make the institutions that people chose to be part of that much more vigorous and vital. So that tension has already always been part of American life. And what has changed, I think, since really the 1960s is that the individualist side is just sort of winning in a rout overall against the institutionalist side. And so you can look at, in certain ways, the kind of social revolutions and upheavals of the 60s and 70s as a version of the kind of great awakenings that were characteristic of American religious life in the 18th and 19th century, a sort of period of tumult and religious experimentation. But in the past, those periods of ferment have tended to be followed by periods of sort of institutional consolidation, where either sort of emergent churches or old churches made new have found ways to sort of take that religious energy and channel it into institutional success. So, you know, the 19th century Great Awakenings give us the Methodist and Baptist churches, in many ways, two of the most important institutional forms of religious faith. Or at various points in time, even the Catholic Church, my own Catholic Church, which you don't think of as sort of a tent revival kind of religion, finds ways to sort of participate in these periods of ferment. You don't have a tent revival, you have a Eucharistic Congress, and you get a sort of similar transmutation of this wild energy into institutional strength. And that just didn't happen after the 60s. And there's a lot of complicated reasons why it didn't, having to do with everything from the sexual revolution to globalization to partisan polarization, which we can get into in a minute. But the effect was that basically you ended up with an American religious landscape where instead of a reasonably solid institutional center of the kind that you still had in the 1950s, what was described as the Protestant Catholic Jew era in American religious history, you had a center that really was sort of Oprah Winfrey and Joel Osteen, you know, a sort of mix of some Christian ideas, some sort of New Age spiritualities, but all of it defined much more by sort of individualism and do-it-yourself religion than in the past. And then the question is, how far does that go? And in the column that you were citing that I wrote a couple of years ago, it does seem like there is a certain resilience to intense and usually institutional forms of Christian faith. So secularization doesn't just carry all before it, and neither does religious individualism. You still have this sort of 
zealous core of religious practice in the United States. I think there are parallels here to the Jewish community. The period of institutional decline that you're describing has also been a period of rapid growth for parts of orthodoxy, right? So that's real too. So it's not as simple as saying we are all just religious individualists now. But still, the individualist side, the crisis of the institutions, is, I think, the primary story of the last 50 years. And it's given us a religious landscape that is not secularized in exactly the way that social scientists sort of confidently expected generations back. It's a very sort of spiritualized landscape, but there's just a lot of religious energy let loose without being channeled through tradition, traditional forms of practice, sort of institutional constraints. And then that spills over into politics inevitably as well. Right. So let's talk about that, because one of the things that we talked about when we met beforehand was my observation to you, which you've also written about, of how striking it was to watch the iconography, the deeply religious iconography of the presidential inauguration. And there are ways in which I don't quite know what to make of Joe Biden as a religious figure. And if we want to kind of back that up, what I really don't understand, and maybe you could help explain this, is the attachment by leaders of conservative Christianity to now former President Trump, who strikes me as effectively the least religious United States president maybe ever, both as measured by kind of the behaviors that the president exhibits, which just don't fit into most religious camps, nor even the performance of religion. Like there was no version of the tension around, like think about the case with Obama of having to answer the question of why was he sitting in church when Reverend Wright said the things that he said, those questions just never came up with Trump because it was never seen as a person who was going to church. So what's going on? Does Biden symbolize something larger than simply a person who's very deeply passionate about his own faith? Does he represent a kind of throwback to something? Maybe help us understand what's going on religiously with the willingness to go along with Trump and what Biden might represent or not. So Biden first. Biden is absolutely a throwback. The central trend in Democratic Party politics, the politics of liberalism over the last couple generations, has been either the secularization or at least the strong move away from Christianity and Christian practice among white liberals and white Democrats. So the Democratic coalition, the party's coalition, has increasingly been a mix of still pretty religious voters in the African-American and Hispanic communities joined to a very secular, very hostile to religious conservatism part of the white vote. And Biden represents something else, right? He represents a form of Roman Catholicism that was politically liberal, very comfortable with liberal policy positions, very comfortable at home in the Democratic Party as its sort of ethnic home going back generations. And that form of Catholicism was incredibly important and significant in American life, basically from John F. Kennedy's election and the Second Vatican Council until the late 1970s, the election of Pope John Paul II and this sort of conservative turn within Catholicism itself. And the story within Catholicism, not to get too deep into the weeds, but the story that most Catholics carried, especially conservative Catholics, was that liberal Catholicism had been the big coming thing in the 60s and 70s, but then it had presided over this sharp collapse within the church, this collapse of vocations to the priesthood, a collapse of mass going, and you'd had this conservative turn and 
liberal Catholicism was something for old baby boomers, right? Which, you know, Joe Biden is older than a baby boomer, right? But it was sort of assumed that the new liberalism was secular rather than Catholic, and the future of Catholicism was conservative. And obviously, Pope Francis has scrambled all that long before Joe Biden came along. But Francis, the Holy Father, and Biden are similar figures in certain ways. They're both throwbacks. They're both people who came of age in the 60s and 70s, and they have given this more liberal form of Catholicism a new moment that I think certainly conservative Catholics, but I think also a lot of liberal Catholics would not have seen coming five or 10 years ago. So that's the Biden side of things. The Trump side of things, I think you can see the weirdness that you're describing in two ways. One way is to say, look, Donald Trump could become the champion of religious conservatism because religious conservatism knew that it had lost the culture wars, knew that it could no longer aspire to sort of set the tone for American society, felt itself, especially after the rulings on same-sex marriage and certain turns that have happened in progressive politics, including that secularization that I was just describing. Because of all of this, religious conservatives have felt themselves beleaguered and embattled, and they ended up sort of accepting Trump in a totally transactional way, where the analogy is to the Persian kings and the people of Israel right, that he's a Cyrus figure, that he's someone who will, in effect, protect the true faith in a period of potential oppression and persecution. And, you know, the fact that he's also a much-married philandering heathen is not a big deal. But that coexists with this part of religious conservatism that I think falls into the category of bad religion, from the book I wrote a while ago, that ended up deciding that it thought Trump was great, and that's the side that sort of prosperity theology, which to the extent that Trump has any actual connections to Christianity, it's to Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking stuff, again, from 50 years ago, but what we would think of as sort of health and wealth spirituality, prosperity gospel spirituality, and then Christian nationalism, which is this strong tendency on the American religious right that Trump clearly played into. So you see, like, Trump ended up with Paula White, for instance, as one of his spiritual advisors. And this is someone who is a Pentecostalist prosperity preacher, dubiously orthodox <laughs> from the point of view, not clear that she believes in the Trinity in the classic orthodox Christian sense. There's some questions about that, but a kind of figure who represented the kind of religious conservatism that ended up deciding that Trump wasn't just the least bad option, but was in fact God's anointed in some strange way. Yeah, I very much like and identify with that reading, which says, okay, to the extent that this is a figure who we can get transactionally what we want, I think this is a similar question for the modern Orthodox community in America, which turns out to have voted in very significant numbers there, yes. for Donald Trump. If it's a transactional relationship, then it's fine. The thing that's more perplexing is when there's the building of a theology around a transactional individual, which then winds up having effect in defining the very nature of that religious turn itself. And I wonder, is Biden being a relic of kind of liberal boomer Catholicism? Is that relevant? Is it symbolically important for American religion? Or are we basically just watching these two figures who are effectively outliers from their faith representing just a partisan divide in this country? And it, it doesn't have a story for religion to be able to tell. I know you're interviewing me, but can I ask you, do you see any of that kind of theologization happening among Orthodox Jewish supporters for Trump, or does it seem purely transactional? 
I think it is unquestionably happening. You see it in the forms of various iconography. I mean, certainly you'll see it in Israel, where 80 to 85 percent of Israelis, had they had the vote, would have voted for Donald Trump. Not the, I don't like him, I don't agree with him, but he did good things for Israel, but actually he's a savior figure. And analogy to Cyrus is actually quite a good one. Not rebuilding the temple, but it is moving the embassy. And I think you see that in certain forms of American Orthodox religious practice as well. That's why it wasn't in huge numbers, but there were Orthodox Jews who were part of the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. There were buses that were organized by some institutions. And as you know, interpretive communities don't act in the world without some hermeneutical strategy, right? It's very rare that you'll just do what you do and not think that it's in some ways interpretable as being part of your authentic faith. Yeah. Now that's really interesting. So to answer your questions, I think it is most likely that we will look back in 25 years on both the religious elements of the Trump phenomenon and the religious elements of the Biden phenomenon and say, look, this was a country where the religious center had broken down. It's a big, diverse country, and you can end up having presidents who represent faith traditions or faith tendencies that are not the defining religious mode for the country as a whole. So, you know, it used to be that almost all American presidents were mainline Protestants. They came from like five or six Protestant denominations. If, you know, if you start after the Civil War and go up through JFK, it's just endless Presbyterians, right? And like Episcopalians and the occasional Quaker. And that era seems to be gone. There's no version of the mainline that you would expect presidents to come from. So I think you could fold... Obama into this as well, a sort of interesting mix of liberal Christianity, radical black Protestantism filtered through Obama's distinctive temperament and style. Obama didn't belong to the American religious center either, and I think neither do Biden or Trump. I do think that Biden's Catholicism is more centrist in some sense than Trump style of Christianity, even though Biden is not as a now very pro-choice Democrat who is sort of moving with progressive activists on a lot of different social questions. He's sort of gotten pretty far from the teachings of his church in certain ways, but a kind of soft participation in the largest American religion, which Catholicism is, does still seem more centrist than Paula White style prosperity Pentecostalism. And I think as someone who's not a liberal Catholic, I have often thought that if liberal Catholicism could find a way to sort of not just be captured by secular progressivism, that it could be, you know, a more influential force in American life and a sort of depolarizing force to some extent. But in spite of, I think, Biden's own quite sincere piety, I don't see that happening in his administration. I think the, the Catholicism is sort of a patina over the same policies that you would get from his vice president or any other mainstream Democrat right now. Do you think the religious partisanship thing is bridgeable in any foreseeable future? I mean, what I see as happens is that the religious commitments on right and left become caricatures based on politics, right? So the left tends to treat right-wing religion in government as fundamentalists, and the right tends to treat left-wing religion as being insincere. When people mock the majority of American Jews who are liberal for believing in tikkun olam and repairing the world, and they treat it as trivial Judaism. And certainly that happens to many of the religious activists on the left. The argument is, it's as you said, it's religious patina over political commitments. It's not sincere. Is that bridgeable? And is it possible to bridge it in a time of such severe partisanship? Or once you're on the opposite side of these political issues, religion is just kind of a secondary casualty. I mean, it's tough. I think we've had 
a lot of evidence for how difficult it is to bridge. And I don't even know if bridging is quite the right way to think about it. I think the key question is, is it possible to act in a politically significant way from within a religious tradition without simply being captive to partisanship and without being seen primarily as a partisan rather than a religious figure. And maybe that's sort of how the bridges get built, ideally. But that really seems to be the challenge, to take an example from evangelicalism, right? So if you had asked me to sort of describe the landscape of evangelicalism before the advent of Donald Trump, I would have given you a sketch that included prosperity theology, included Pentecostalism, and you know, evangelicalism is big and complicated, and whether you're an insider to it or an outsider, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. But I would have said that, look, there's an important part of evangelicalism that is sort of trying to build a style of evangelical Christianity that is not just defined by its relationship with conservative politics and the religious right. And I would have cited figures like a Tim Keller, right, the famous pastor in New York City and religious author. I would have cited someone like Russell Moore, who works for the Southern Baptist Policy Office and was a prominent figure. And I would have cited a bunch of figures like that who were sort of younger generation figures who were clearly conservatives. They were very pro-life. No one would confuse them with religious liberals, but they were trying to sort of stake out an identity that wasn't just a Republican identity. And they just got steamrolled <laughs> in the Trump era right? I mean, you know, they're still there, and it's a big country, right? It's possible to have all kinds of tendencies at any given time. But the defining mood of evangelicalism clearly in the Trump era was, regardless of how you come to it, once Trump is aligned as the leader of the right against the liberals, you're going to be on board with Trump. And the idea of sort of having a Christian identity that isn't a Republican identity just became very quickly a very marginal thing. And it's a little different in Catholicism, but there's something similar where, you know, the Catholic bishops spend a lot of time trying to do just that, to say, look, we're not partisan. We have liberal views on immigration and conservative views on abortion and so on. But there, too, they just sort of fall out of the discourse. People don't even sort of notice that the bishops are putting out these careful, even-handed, nuanced statements. They're only interested in the Catholic figures who belong to the right and left. I guess, long story short, there are people trying, and it needs to be tried, I think, for religion to have a future that isn't just captive to partisanship. It's really important. It's just an incredibly challenging thing in a polarized landscape where institutional religious loyalties are increasingly just weaker than partisan loyalties. And so the weaker loyalty gets swallowed by the stronger one. This is a very personal question for our institution, because we're actually striving to be a nonpartisan institution. Um, the theory that there is some gap between what we might call the moral, the political, and the partisan, and that theological questions, spiritual questions, even moral questions, and even political questions can be litigated and discussed and debated across difference without our institution. Obviously, we don't want to lose our 501c3 status. That's important. But more importantly, we don't want to foreclose who are the audiences and participants and research fellows at the Hartman Institute who can participate because we've made very clear stances. And in this climate, it's just really hard to do. And I'm, you said something like this actually at the end of Bad Religion. One of the appeals you made to kind of save Christianity in America was that the church has to be political without being partisan. So I asked you first, is it possible to bridge these gaps in this market? <laughs> what is a stance on something that is political without being partisan? 
And I'll tell you honestly, I'm coming under a lot of criticism, especially from folks on my left who have said to me this exact thing, which is, if you're not talking politics, you're irrelevant. And if you're talking politics, you're already inherently partisan. So what is a stake that would look like for Christianity in America that was political without being partisan? I'm not sure that this is helpful for your institutional dilemmas. The way I think about it as a newspaper columnist, which also should be the way that ideally politicians think about it as well, is that in a polarized environment, you're going to end up aligning more with the right or with the left in some way, shape, or form. Most of the time, right? Most people, it's, there are people who can sort of maintain a kind of perfect centrism. But in general, you're going to look at a columnist and read them a lot. And you're going to say, all right, that guy's more of a conservative. That guy's more of a liberal. So when that happens, let's say you end up as a liberal, more aligned with the liberal side of debates. You want to then look for the place where based on a religious perspective, in my case, a Christian perspective, in your case, a Jewish perspective, you think the side that you're on is just wrong, like really wrong. And there should be such a place because it is very unlikely that any political coalition for this side of eternity is going to happen to come up with a political platform that exactly matches the divine institutes and so on, right? So you want to find the place that your side is most wrong about and you want to make it an issue. You want to make it an important issue for you. And you want to always keep that issue in view, even at moments where the pull of the times makes it seem like, you know, you absolutely just have to be on side all the time and fighting the good fight. And that's easier for a columnist to do than a politician, obviously. But it's things that politicians can and should be able to do and have done, right? Like, I think George W. Bush was not, in the end, a very successful president, but I do think he did this to some extent. You know, Bush was a Republican. He was clearly a right-wing politician. But if you look at his presidency, you can find a number of issues ranging from stuff in domestic policy on the compassionate conservative beat to his incredibly important humanitarian efforts to fight AIDS in Africa that a different Republican politician who was not a born-again Christian would not have championed. So you can look at the Bush record and say, okay, I can identify the moments where his policy was informed more by his Christianity than by his conservatism. And again, that doesn't guarantee he would be a good president. He still shouldn't have invaded Iraq. There were, you know, endless disasters. But you could at least say that about him. And I think that should be the goal if you are engaged in politics. And in the Trump era, right, to bring this back to the various conservative Christians who made their peace with Trump, there were reasons to make your peace with Trump as a conservative Christian. Obviously, there were reasons. What was disappointing to me for at least some of those people and figures was that having made their peace with Trump, they seemed to sort of forget how to criticize him because it was like, all right, well, now we're all on the same side. And the fact that he's separating children from their parents at the border or the fact that he's kind of a monstrous human being, right? We just won't bring those things up. And that's a failure. That's the opposite of what it should be that having said, I'm going to vote for Trump because he's the lesser of two evils and I feel he will fight abortion and protect the church then you also need to always be ready to say, and here are the three things I think Trump is doing that are deeply unchristian and wrong. That's one way of thinking about the challenge.
So I, I could talk to you about partisanship and this question all day, but there's a couple of other things I'd love to put on the table, including the interfaith piece. And this is kind of a personal question, which I hope is okay. You've spoken about yourself as not a liberal Christian. It's not how you identify. And you write about, I think the metaphor you use is about America as a country with a river of Christianity as its center. Even at the beginning of this talk tonight, you said the history of American religion is really the history of Christianity in America. And I really want to ask you as a Jew, thinking about the interfaith question, what is the room in that vision of America, not just descriptively, but I imagine aspirationally, what's the room in that story for American Jews for whom, A, many American Jews understand America as promised land. So it's not we're visiting in a Christian country, but we actually see ourselves as deeply at home in this place. And I guess the bigger version of it is what is the room for particular otherness? Because that vision of Christian America is really a universalist. It's an articulation of a universalist religion that seeks to find its place in this home. So how do you think about the interfaith encounter? And more than that, how do you think about the place of Jews in America when you talk about America as a country with a river of Christianity at its center? That's a really good question. I mean, I think that if I were being more precise, what I would say is that America is a country that has a Protestant Christian river at its center. And then the question has been sort of, to what extent can that river widen? This metaphor is going to fall apart like an estuary in a strong storm. But yeah, to what extent can that center widen to encompass first other Christian traditions that are not Protestant, and second, other religious traditions that are not Christian, before it sort of ceases to be a center at all, before there ceases to be any kind of religious common ground that unites America. And I think it's an open question, essentially how wide a center can become before it ceases to become a center, right? So if you go back to the post-war period, you had this language, this public language in American life of Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Judeo-Christian, these kind of terms that basically reflected this sense that First, Catholicism, once the great other, in certain ways more feared than Judaism in 19th century America, had been kind of encompassed. And then at least the sort of more Americanized forms of Judaism as well. But that was also the last moment when I think a meaningful religious center existed. And what happened thereafter was that the Protestants dream in the middle of the central river just sort of dried up and the main line went into this deep decline. And so you've ended up in American life now with this very peculiar landscape where the people who were excluded from the country's religious center in the 19th century, conservative Catholics, conservative and Orthodox Jews, and disreputable Protestants, <laughs> right? The non-main line, right? The people having the tent revivals, they're the ones who are sort of nostalgic for the days when America had a religious center, even though that center only included them for maybe 20 to 40 years, depending on how you define it. And meanwhile, the people who are really the heirs of mainline Protestantism, which is to say the people who still run the institutions that were associated with mainline Protestantism, like Ivy League schools and so on, those people now regard America's Christian past as either an embarrassment or something worse and regard themselves as sort of the stewards of a country that of sort of perfect religious diversity with no necessary religious center unless you regard secular progressivism as a would-be religious center 
unto itself. So that's a very long way of saying that the answer to your question is, I don't know. So when I, I was first writing, when I was a teenager and then an early 20-something would-be journalist and a new convert to Catholicism, there was this sense among religious conservatives that somehow the evangelicals, the Jews and the Catholics, and maybe the Mormons too, and before 9-11, maybe even some Muslims, could somehow put an ecumenical center together to replace the mainline Protestant center. And that didn't work. And it seems sort of crazy to imagine that it could work. Can the outsiders all get together and recreate a center that the insiders don't want to have anymore? But that seems to be sort of a description right now of where a piece of American Judaism, at least, has been sort of involved in this weird collaboration to try and bring back a dead center. And then another piece, the more liberal Reform Judaism piece, is involved in a different project to sort of, well, I'll just caricature it unfairly and say to place progressive politics at the kind of religious center of American life. That's really interesting because it helps me to understand there's this interesting moment in the late 70s. I don't know if you've seen this when there's an exchange of letters between the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the head of the Chabad Lubavitch sect, which has become a growing denomination of American Judaism, Chabad, on college campuses around the country. Exchange of letters between the Rebbe and at the time the head of the reform movement, Rabbi Glazer, about the merits of Jews endorsing Hanukkah menorahs in public, where if Jews assent or try to push for menorahs in public, they're basically allowing for Christian symbolism in the public square also. And the reform movement's argument is try to keep the public square naked and neutral. We Jews should be on the side of less religion in the American public square. And the Rebbe's argument back to him is America is and always has been a Christian country. So why don't we let our Christian neighbors put a crush on the lawn? And what we should do is advocate for a menorah. And what you're basically helping to illustrate is that that was an argument for basically a conservative leaning Jewish sect to say, we want to actually rebuild the religious right. center in America. I guess the more provocative challenge of today is that the progressive argument is not just we don't want that religious center. We want to compete with what we might call a multi-faith, multi-ethnic coalition, which looks like a totally different set of religious denominations or commitments that would constitute that current. So it's actually a much more robust competitor to that original version of American religion. Is that fair to say? I don't know. It's certainly a competitor. I feel like all the competitors have these internal tensions and contradictions, right? So if the sort of conservative side is saying we can recreate what was really a Protestant religious culture and we'll do it as Catholics, Jews, and evangelicals and Mormons, that's tough, right? And then on the progressive side, there's a lot going on in progressivism right now. There's a lot of energy and action that I'm trying to analyze, and it's hard to know exactly for sure where it's going. But, you know, at the very least, you would say the problem for progressivism is, one, it wants to have all of these different faiths together under this sort of umbrella, but it wants all the faiths to kind of be the same. In the end, the emphasis is not on having radically different forms of Islam and Judaism and Christianity together. It's having all of these faiths evolve towards a similar sort of humanitarian liberal form of faith, right? So you have this sort of rhetoric of diversity, but then the coalition actually depends on a certain kind of liberal uniformity. 
And then you just have the question of how that then coexists with the fact that the bulk of the progressive coalition is secularized in certain ways, post-monotheistic in certain ways. It's just a very complicated thing to try to put together, I think, in ways that are different from the complexities of religious conservatism, but no less challenging. In a year of big challenges, it's important to come back to big ideas. The kinds of ideas that inspire. Ideas that start conversations. Ideas that both speak powerfully to the moment and help us envision a better world. That's why the Shalom Hartman Institute is so proud to introduce you to Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. A quarterly journal being launched this spring, available both in print and online. The first issue tackles current events and systemic challenges alike, including whatever happened to Jewish pluralism, whether Jewish continuity is fundamentally sexist, and the communal implications of life in an extended pandemic. As a listener to this podcast, you're invited to claim your free copy of the inaugural edition of Sources. To get it delivered to your door or to your inbox, visit sourcesjournal.org today. Once again, that's sourcesjournal.org. Thank you. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, I told you before when we started, I had this thrilling moment reading your work when you make reference to Franz Rosenzweig, the early 20th century Jewish thinker. But you use them in one context, but actually the text from Rosenzweig that I think is most aligned with what you're talking about is that in your book, you make reference to Niebuhr and to Billy Graham and Martin Luther King, all representing in, this, in the mid 20th century, what you called confidence, kind of a Christian confidence, which I think means, and you'll help to unpack it, a kind of commitment to orthodoxy, right? It's not mealy-mouthed in its commitment to real serious religion, and it can use that lever of knowledge and thickness and texture to actually advance for a vision of the world, right? That it actually, it's willing to do something. It's willing to fight for itself. And Rosenzweig, by the way, uses the same language about Judaism. He says, what we need in our period of time is writing in the twenties is not more books about Judaism. He says, what we need to cultivate is a confidence where a Jew will say nothing Jewish is alien to me feels completely at home in the world and therefore able to build up something. What do you mean by confidence? How do you understand the secret sauce of good religion, of serious religion? Because you've told us a lot about what bad religion is, and we certainly can see it on display in our politics. What is good religion? What is serious, deep, thick religion? I mean, I think that the confidence that I'm describing in that era is a, I guess I would say it's a belief in an orthodoxy that isn't just an antiquarianism. So it's a belief in and connection to a religious tradition that binds you and constrains you in various ways that makes you its pupil so that you're not just sort of a teacher unto yourself. You're not just sort of reinventing the faith in every generation. You ultimately, I think this applies to Catholics and Jews equally well, right? You think that you are actually in a religion that was set up by the creator of the universe a long time ago for purposes that are central to human destiny. And you think all this, and you also are participating fully in what then in the 1950s was, you know, you would have just said uncomplicatedly was the modern moment in world history. Now, maybe we'd say postmodern or late modern or late capitalism or something like that. And what was distinctive about that period, I think, was this sense, very temporary sense, but a very powerful sense, that alternatives to biblical religion 
had seemed to carry all before them and then had ended up with Auschwitz and the Gulag and the atomic bomb, the sort of general horror of World War II, the specific horror of the Holocaust. And so there was this sense in which, in very different ways, Niebuhr and Graham and other figures like them could sort of step forward and they could be unembarrassed by belonging to this pre-modern, medieval, ancient, you know, going back to the deserts of Mesopotamia religion. They could say, I can stand up here toe-to-toe with any secular modern because what a secular modernity delivered us just the last 10 years of horror. And that was, I think, a distinctive moment that then fed into this confidence that runs through the, not successors exactly, but the sort of the liberalizing, the liberal project, the liberal religious project of the 1960s, especially in Catholicism, but in other faiths as well, was sort of an extension of this, where there was this sense that like, okay, we can stand on our own two feet in the modern world, but now we need to do this liberalization in order to fully convert the modern world, right? That Certainly the Second Vatican Council, I think, for a lot of Catholics involved in that era, that was the sense that like, all right, Catholicism has been resilient. We've passed through the flames of modernity. We're still here. We're still important. But we can now sort of transform the world if we transform ourselves somewhat. And I'm a conservative, I suppose, in part because I think that liberalization failed. And in its failure is a sign that maybe it was too eager to transform and not bound closely enough to the core truths that tradition was trying to sustain. But that's sort of how I think about that particular period in American religious history. I guess it raises a big question for me, though, which is you see on display even among American public officials on the Supreme Court, you described your own experience, the attraction to convert to Catholicism in particular is an attraction to a certain type of majesty, a certain type of history, a seriousness Right? It's easy to kind of parody other denominations as liberal. And you see this actually growing on display in the Jewish community also by liberal Jews, both fear and attraction to orthodoxy, because orthodoxy is numbers are growing. I can't tell you how many Jews I find who don't like that they think this, but tend to think of Orthodox Jews as, well, they're the serious ones. So there's that. But there's some aspect of that that I wonder whether it, it only really works when it's a minority. <laughs> it only really works when it's small. But when it actually becomes hegemonic, then by the same token that liberal secularization can bring about these terrible things in the world, so can religious totalitarianism. So like, how's that going to work itself out? That goes back to my question of a vision for a thicker, serious religion for the American public square without allowing religion to essentially become its own problem, religion to get in its own way. Well, I mean, I guess in American history, I don't really think we've come close to that problem, because even at its most unified, our religious center was always divided. Like, even the Protestant mainline, those churches had a lot of things in common, but you could still get a good fight going (laughs) between Presbyterians and Episcopalians, right? A very genteel fight, but a fight nonetheless. I guess I just think in the American context, we're so far away from having a hegemonic religion right now, let alone a hegemonic church or denomination or sect, that the liberal fear of zeal and hyper-seriousness shading into inquisitorial territory in religion, that fear is justified by a lot of problems and moral disasters in the history of Christianity especially. But I don't think it's the relevant fear for the current moment, right? I mean, you can even see this in the Trump phenomenon, right? That 30 years ago, 
Margaret Atwood wrote a novel, The Handmaid's Tale, where she imagined the religious right becoming this terrifying Shia Iran-style theocracy. But what actually happened was that the religious right became a minority that felt so desperate and beleaguered that they put Donald Trump in the White House, which the least theocratic... I think those dangers are historically very real. I don't think they are the sort of palpable present danger in the American moment right now. And certainly even less of a danger, we're even further from having a Orthodox Jewish theocracy than we are from having a evangelical Protestant theocracy, I would say. In this country, maybe. Right, no, I mean, the Israeli... So what's interesting, too, some of my fellow Catholics have become enamored of what get called integralist ideas, right, which I think would fall into the category you're describing. And what is striking reading them is that the sort of softer integralism that they describe, the softer church-state relationship that isn't Spanish Inquisition Spain, sounds a lot like a Catholic version of the state of Israel, where you have religious diversity, you have plenty of secular people, but there is a sort of rabbinate with a certain kind of power, and there is a sort of religious identity. Anyway, it's just sort of interesting how things have circled around to the point where the Jewish state is a model for a certain kind of ambitious Catholic. Well, I'd say God help us on that one personally. But I mean, I watch this space closely because I think one of the most interesting trends in Israel right now actually is precisely on this, which is secularism in Israel basically realizes that it lost and that the only way that secular ideals, humanistic ideals are going to be able to actually compete with the ascendancy of the religious community in Israel is by being religious. And so there are those types of changes, kind of a democratic, humanistic Jewish religion in Israel that actually cares about being in the public square and wants to compete for it because it knows that if it's secular against tradition, it ultimately will lose. But let me ask you one last question, just elevating a question from our Q&A. It's a nice one, so I'll let you finish with this one. What do you believe the creator of the universe wants us to do here on earth? And how does that vision differ from your view of a liberal approach to the world? And we talked a lot about a lot of the other topics that were raised here around church and state, about coalitions, about political parties, but this is a learning community. And I guess people would like to hear a little bit more use that phrase earlier, belief that God placed us on this world, creator of the universe placed us on this world to do something. Give us some of that vision. I'll say something that isn't political. It has political implications, but I mean, I think God, the creator of the universe, put us here to to suffer and to be transformed by suffering into creatures worthy of everlasting life. And that's not the only thing that we're here for. And the world is a good place. It's not just a place of suffering. It's, you know, it's a place of joy and bliss and ecstasy and marveling at God's creation. But I think that Human life is, to a great extent, a test in which we're asked to exert ourselves in ways that lead to further testing. And I don't know, maybe some of the audience saw the movie Soul, the Pixar movie, came out recently. And, you know, it's about a guy who dies untimely and goes to the afterlife and doesn't want to go on, wants to come back to Earth and hooks up with a soul that doesn't want to go to Earth in the first place. It's a very clever, lovely movie, but I think it fundamentally falls short because the emphasis of the movie is on learning to not be obsessed with all the things that you want to do, but to sort of live in the moment and appreciate life on its own terms and appreciate sort of the commonplace, the beauty of the commonplace and sort of the ordinary joys, the taste of a hot dog, right? All these things. And, and 
that's not wrong, but it's the start. It's not the end, right? You need that. You need to love the world. You need to appreciate the beauty of the everyday. If you don't, then you have spiritual growing to do. But ultimately, you're here to make choices that put you in positions where you are vulnerable and where you will be exposed to unpleasantness, difficult tribulation and suffering. And by bearing through those tribulations and that suffering, you come closer to being the person, the soul, the creature that God wants you to become. And, you know, that has implications for politics. You want to participate in politics in a way that certainly eases other people's suffering because you aren't in the business. God imposes, <laughs> God sets up the suffering, not you. You're not in the business of imposing suffering. But that participating in politics is a way to expose yourself and to sort of help yourself change for the better. But often politics is just a distraction for most people, including people who write about politics for a living for me. You know, the most important drama is the choices you make in your personal life the struggles you encounter and what those do to you for better or for worse. I'll let that be the last word. I'm really grateful to you for your time, for your honesty, for your writing and for your work. I suspect that you said a bunch of things tonight, whether politically or theologically, that might've been challenging for some folks in our audience, but that's kind of the point. And I'm really grateful that we can start this dialogue. And I hope one day after this pandemic is over, you'll come visit us at the Interchurch Center, which you've written about. That's where the Harvard Institute is located. So Ross, thanks so much. It's great to meet you. Great to meet you. And hopefully I'll see you in an embodied form someday. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to our show this week. And special thanks to my guest, Ross Douthat. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Harvard Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by Alex Dillon and Talia Graf, with support from Sam Hainback, edited by Alex Dillon, and music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Harman Institute, visit us online, shalomharman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show, and you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening.